It's now time for your Election Crimes Bulletin with Greg Pallas. And this is Dennis with Greg Pallas. And believe me, if you don't think your your votes are in jeopardy, you need to pay attention. Uh, we're going to stay on this as uh, Greg and I have been for many years. It's always uh, terrific to have Greg with us uh, breaking it down. He's been doing a whole bunch of new investigations. Uh, and we're going to tap into some of those uh, tonight. Greg, obviously, it's great to have you back. Uh, maybe maybe before we get started, could you bring us a couple of Cokes, please? <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, that Choco, it's, it's like one of the worst product placements since they found a copy of my book, <laughs> Best Democracy Money Can Buy, in, in Osama bin Laden's bookshelf. That's true. By Where the way. have you heard that phrase before? I mean, I, I, can't, yeah. I know I picked Bring it up. Bring us a couple of Cokes, please, is from Donald Trump's, he was recorded. And here's the interesting thing. Most people, when they commit crimes, don't ask their, uh, their staffers to make tape recordings. But he did. This was the apparently for Jack Smith, the coup de grace, the reason why Trump is facing indictments in the documents case, is because he was recorded, and we've discussed a bit of this before, he was recorded um, showing, you could hear him saying, I'm showing you documents which are highly classified. He actually says this. And which are highly classified. You know, remember, he's made the argument. And by the way, it wasn't just nothing. It was the plans for attacking Iran. (laughs) This is not small stuff. Okay, so what could be more secret than the actual, the military orders for attacking Iran? It's the specifics of how they would uh, go into Iran if they had to. Now, understand, he did this for cheap political reasons, exposing these documents, which is that, he was really angry about a New Yorker article in which General Milley was quoted as saying he was really, really, really worried that Trump, as a last-minute in the last-minute attempt to stay in office, would attack Iran as an excuse to stay in office, create an emergency, if not a nuclear war, just to stay in office. And he was worried about that. So uh, what Trump did was tell this author who was writing a biography of of Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff. Uh, there's not enough coffee in America to get through such a book. So he was telling Millie, the kind of ghostwriter for, for uh, Mark Meadows, and uh, the Meadows' publisher, look, Millie said these things, but he gave me – he was the one who wanted to attack Iran. He gave me these documents. Right. Actually, that's not what happened. Uh, obviously, Millie works is a general. We have civilian control of our government, and if the president wants to have the plans of attack, he gets them. Uh, he, that's one of the things why apparently Millie was so worried. Why did he want the plan of attack? Also, it should be noted that the plan of attack was not actually written up under Millie, but well before under his, his predecessor. We have plans of attack not only for Iran, but probably for Canada as well. Everywhere, yeah. So, you know, Everywhere, yeah. So, yeah. But, but the idea that he was literally showing these people classified documents, and he admits, remember, he used the excuse that, well, I was president. I can declassify anything. And he came up with the idea, this legal theory, which from, I guess, what law school he, he forgot to attend, that if he walks out the door of the White House with documents, by definition, he's declassified them because he's president. No, sir, you're not emperor, you're not king, you're president. And even a president taking a national security document, especially one like that, I'm not quite sure why they didn't go through his papers as he was walking out the White House. But that's another issue that we really need to, to discuss at some point. 
Uh, they knew he was taking papers out. Why they didn't check him in the first place is another. Well, well now really he's saying that address. those weren't, those weren't, I don't you know, now, now he, it was a little confusion, but what he's saying is actually those were plans for a new building or a new shopping mall or a new golf course or something. Uh, right, that he was, he was actually. To say, I never saw any, yeah, I never saw any real national, I never took national security documents, just a bunch of, of personal stuff and clippings from the Washington Post, et cetera, right? And here he's saying, look at this highly secretive stuff. And, he's, and he admits, he said, if I were still president, I could have de- I could I declassified could, I could, it. But yeah. now, quote, now I can't. In other words, he admits that he knows. Right, this is he's guilty. Yeah. Yeah, here's the thing. When but he's doing, been guilty I, of I a lot, justice. Greg. He's been guilty of a lot. Let, and yeah, let's just be important. real. We're talking about the okay. documents thing, which is already clouded by the fact that everybody has, uh, you know, and I know it's a big difference between what Trump did and everything, but it's a, it's a very cloudy issue on the way to getting very close to an election. So uh, maybe there'll yeah. be some justice about this and maybe not. So, so number one is what this establishes is intent, because the most difficult thing in a crime like this, you actually pretty much have to tell a jury he knew he was committing a crime. And how are they going to do that? So Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, uh, was kind of stumped and, uh, until he got this recording because here the guy admits, I know I am doing this and I'm not supposed to. And his staffer says to him, on that recording, now we're in trouble. He actually says, yeah. now we're in trouble for showing the document. Yeah. So, and they laughed about it. And then he said, oh, okay, well, uh, would you bring me some Cokes, please? Bring us some coke. Because those are committing a crime. We don't want to be thirsty. And we're laughing. But this is, you know, you're showing the plans for attacking Iran to someone. And, and what is he doing with those plans? And, of course, there's always the, the great fear that he sold them. or it, The way he's handling them. Can you imagine if, you know, uh, God knows who's getting copies of these documents. Uh, you know, they're being, they're being handled like throwaway pictures of, uh, from your cousin's bar mitzvah or something. So this is a yeah. very, very serious thing for, for Trump and for America. It, it is indeed. You're listening to the Election Crimes Bulletin on Flashpoints. This is Pacifica Radio, your daily investigative news magazine. We do this with Greg Palast at gregpalast.com, uh, investigative reporter uh, monitoring vote and protecting the vote, really investigating what's happening in terms of voter suppression across this country, and he has been doing it for many years. Greg, but we got to talk about I want to focus on the Supreme Court, what's been coming yes. out, and uh, Paul the Vulture Singer. This is somebody you've been on top of. There has been some decent re- reporting coming out of uh, Washington uh, on the story, but there's a lot more to the story. And, of course, it, it, it turns the entire U.S. justice system on its head and puts it all into question, this story. Yes, well, let, let me mention, uh, obviously... I hope that all of you, or most of you, have heard the story that Paul Singer, the man who I called and now everyone calls the vulture, but he actually has a what everyone in the industry calls the vulture fund, about uh, just a little under $50 billion, where he goes after uh, companies, nations, and people who are dying. And then he's kind of like a super repo man uh, collecting and uh, a lo- he's like a loan shark repo man collecting on nations, people, and companies who are, da- who are in-, in trouble with old debt and trying to collect up to 100 times the value of debt owed. So I've been tracking Paul the Vulture Singer. 
starting with BBC Television in 2007. The story here is that in 2008, when I was on this investigation, Paul Singer pleasured Justice Samuel Alito by giving him a $100,000 private jet seat to go with Singer and Leo, uh, Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society. They're the ones that kind of helped right-wing presidents pick judges. They went together to a fancy hunting lodge in Alaska from Washington. This is a very nice little gimme, and Alito never mentioned the $100,000 value gift. It's $100,000 each way, by the way, so it's a quarter million if you include everything else. He never mentioned the quarter million dollar gift, never declared it, which he's supposed to, and never declared and did not recuse himself from any cases involving Singer. Now, I should mention, while I applaud ProPublica for taking this on, I should note that I try to get ProPublica interested in this in 2008. They weren't and uh, the, the rest of the media. Now, you have to understand, this is not the only pleasuring that Singer does with these guys. And the only case that, that Paul Publica mentioned where there was a conflict was a case that Paul Singer brought against the nation of Argentina. The Argentine military dictatorship decades ago issued a bunch of junk bonds uh, to uh, support some of their, you know, like their Falklands adventure. These bonds are worthless, not and not declared legitimate uh, in the rest of the world. In fact, in most of the world, you can't collect on these bonds. After I did my work for BBC on Paul the Vulture Singer, um, his activities were outlawed in Britain, Germany, Belgium, China, South Africa. I, I can go on and on. Uh, so the United States is one of the few places where this guy can try to collect his pound of flesh from his victims. So one of the things that... Uh, in Argentina, these, he paid $50 million for these junk bonds and demanded Argentina give him $5 billion. And if they didn't give him $5 billion, he was going to stop them. And he did stop them from making payments to, like, for example, the, the, you know, that they owed money on bonds. He actually stopped them from making payments and forced the nation of Argentina into a devastating default. Wow. Now, that case went before the U.S. Supreme Court. And Alito sided with Singer, but did not declare, mention that, by the way, this is my buddy. Now, as legal scholars, I've heard several talk about this. They said if he was just a friend of Singer's and went on this trip, then he, if he's that close to Singer, he should definitely have recused himself from anything involving Singer. The other is that if he wasn't a friend of Singer's, then what was he doing taking this giant, this giant gift? And certainly, why wasn't he recording it? He shouldn't have been taking it at all. Now, what is left out, many things left out of the ProPublica story. Number one, the, the trips for other justices, including Justice Thomas, was also given a free ride by a Singer on one of his two private jets. I know he has two. What they also, and very, very important, are some of the other cases Singer was involved in. Most importantly, and this is really, really important, Singer's big game goal in influencing the judiciary was to overturn the Voting Rights Act, and he was the big promoter of Shelby versus Holder, the county of Shelby, Alabama. And now, by the way, this week marks the 10th anniversary of Shelby v. Holder. For those who don't remember what that is, in, 19, in, in 2013, 10 years ago this week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled, basically eliminated a big hunk of the Voting Rights Act, including Section 5. 
Now, what a Section 5 is, is that if it's those states and cities, which, by the way, include Arizona, Alaska, parts of California, and, of course, most of the Deep South, if you had a history of discriminating against voters of color, and that includes Indian tribes, Hispanics, that's how California ended up there, New York City was on the list, you have to, any change you make to your voting activities, you have to get approved to make sure that they don't discriminate against black people. Shelby, Alabama, was told they changed their voting system to basically eliminate black supervisors on their county board. And they were told by the Justice Department, you can't change your, you can't eliminate your uh, voting districts just to eliminate black people. So they took it to the Supreme Court, but Shelby, Alabama doesn't have the money to take it to the Supreme Court. Where did that come from? It came from two groups of donors. One was the Koch brothers through Donors Trust, is their cover, and Paul Singer through the Manhattan Institute, which he funds and pretty much directs. So Shelby v. Holder, the most devastating decision against voting rights, was directly created and promulgated by Paul Singer Alito should have recused himself. That would have changed the outcome because that decision was made 5-4 with Alito's vote. He should not have been on that decision. If that happened, we would still have the full Voting Rights Act. So that's very, very important. Absolutely. And just to underline this, Greg, Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody knows the itinerary for the trip and the cost list. But these are, number one, extremely expensive trips. And I'm sort of looking at some of the photos and all these, it's sort of a bunch of uh, back-slapping old men. It's all men. Was You think these trips yes. were all men? Yes, well, you know, well, here's one of the things to note, that this is, by the way, this one trip with Paul Singer is part of a whole series of trips with Singer and other wealthy guys. Singer and Koch, the Koch brothers used to have, or still have actually, uh, a semi-annual gathering of rich people, powerhouses, and judges. This is so-called training for judges. So the Singer and the Koch brothers together, because Singer usually attends these things, but they're organized by the Koch brothers, uh, now, now just Charles, because David has passed away in which they would have uh, judges from all levels, Supreme Court justices, appellate judges, etc. Again, go to Vail. They were in Vail, Colorado, um, and, and other fancy resort areas, very expensive digs. And supposedly they're getting training. The judges, well, do you really want rich guys who you may have to sue being trained, training your judges? Plus, the images are very important. If you're a judge on an appellate bench and you want to get on the Supreme Court, you're watching this, and you're seeing – and don't one guy's name keeps getting left off is Leonard Leo as head of the Federal Society. You want to become a Supreme Court justice or, say, move up from a circuit court to an appellate court. You notice that the president and the rich guys and all these guys are getting together with, Leo, uh, with Leonard Leo and with Singer. You're not going to cross those guys if you want to move up. So it's very, very important to understand how this is operating. And I will say, I'm just going to throw it at you, but I'm not going to say more than that, so I'm not going to let you ask any further questions, Dennis. I'm warning you in advance. I just spoke to an FBI agent who infiltrated one of these meetings of the Cokes. Again, it's not just Singer and Alito. It's Singer and 
and many other justices and the Kochs and other justices. So he infiltrated one of these meetings, an FBI agent, and uh, the comment was, gee, all these judges seem to have very young women with them. So he said, isn't it nice that they brought their daughters? Of course, they weren't their daughters. So what else is going on at these meetings? And uh, I'm looking further into that. So there's a lot more to come. Let's put it, there's a lot more to come at a lot of different levels. Well, and let me add something else. The other thing that that ProPublica did not include and is never included, and I can tell you why, I did a story on Paul Singer's influence when Mitt Romney was running for president in 2012. I did the cover story for The Nation magazine. I discovered that Paul the Vulture Singer had given over $100 million to Mitt Romney. Not a campaign contribution. This is into his pocket. How did that happen? What Paul Singer did was allow Mitt Romney's wife, through her so-called secret trust, and I got the documentation, by the way, because Nation didn't want to get sued. Uh, We have the documentation that basically they were let in on a no-lose deal with Paul the Vulture Singer so that they got, uh, with virtually no investment, got a $110 million windfall. And guess what? This was while he was running for president. It was money from you and me from the auto bailout fund. Paul Singer threatened, purchased, secretly purchased with a few of his Vulture Fund buddies, purchased General Motors Auto Parts Division, Delco, which was renamed Delphi. He told Obama's car czar, uh, Steve Ratner, if you don't give me and my buddies $12 billion, I want to repeat that, if you don't give us $12 billion, we're shutting down all 38 Delphi auto parts plants in America. We're going to just shut them down. And that means that General Motors, already in bankruptcy, will be liquidated. That is, all the jobs eliminated. Because they're already in bankruptcy. The next step is simply liquidation. They would liquidate General Motors and liquidate Chrysler. Because Chrysler depended completely on parts made by General Motors. Most people didn't, don't know that. So, so they would have taken down two of the three of the big three auto companies. They were already in bankruptcy. They would have simply been liquidated. So the car czar for Obama said, this is pure extortion. Extortion is a quote from Obama's car czar. And then they wrote the check. And Romney's piece was about $110 million. Secretly passed to him. Which, this by sort the way, of sort of it sounds like a corporate version of making them an offer that they can't refuse. Yeah. Oh, it's very, if you remember, like the way George Bush became wealthy, uh, was uh, he was given a piece of the Texas Rangers with putting up next to nothing for it. And, that, and he got a $25 million windfall. Same with Romney. People think he got his money from Bain Capital, from his own little vulture operation, his own little investment bank. But in fact, the big money came to him uh, slipped under the door from Paul the Vulture Singer. You know, understand, how come that wasn't reported? How come only this little story, and let's not forget, this story is now 15 years old that ProPublica decided it would tiptoe out and mention with Alito. And everyone's making a big deal. So why weren't these other stories reported? The answer is threats. When I did the story in 2007, 
for BBC television, and I also put it on the front page of the Guardian newspapers, that Paul the Vulture Singer, who is very close to Bush, the number one donor to the Republican Party out of New York, BBC got a threat. Paul Singer's goons called BBC and told my producers, we have a file on Greg Palast. So what they do is they keep files on journalists to threaten them and blackmail them. And I said, well, if you got a file, publish it. And BBC said, well, obviously you have a file. Well, you have a file on him. He obviously has a file on you. BBC would not back down. But I had other stations, including Al Gore's current TV, back down. American stations completely backed away because they were scared. And the case of the auto bailout, are you ready for this, Dennis? And I'm bringing this up because you can, you're only hearing this on Pacifica Radio for a reason. When I did the story about the $110 million that Romney got flipped to him by Paul Singer. Um, it was on the cover of Nation, so you'd think they might get a little notice. Bob King, who is president of the United Auto Workers, called the Associated Press uh, reporter on the auto beat. Now, for those who don't know journalism in America or do, you're not a story unless the Associated Press puts them on its, wi- on its wire. That makes a story legitimate. It has to be on the AP wire. So he said, how come this amazing – have you read this story by Greg Palace? How come it's not on the AP wire? And Bob told me that the AP reporter said, I think it's an amazing story, but for the first time in my 30-year career, I got a call from AP Washington saying, do not touch this story. Don't mention it. You can't even report it that Romney got this money, but he denied it. By the way, I called Romney's office. They did not deny it. I'll repeat that. They did not deny that Romney got $110 million. They were claiming that it was legitimate and not against the law. So, again, uh, the, uh, AP, the AP said we can't, you know, with the reporter told by Washington, you may not touch this Romney Paul Singer story. And, again, they threaten papers. They threaten reporters. That's why you don't get this story. And by the way, if you want the story of Paul Singer, the vulture, if you go to gregpalast.com, there's a free download of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, the film, and that has a lot about Paul Singer, Mitt yes, Romney, and the rest of the gang. Very so this important is, this film. This is a big story, and all you got is a little, they give you a little peephole edition. Oh, it's Alito and Singer, and they went fishing. And a lot of people think, oh, that's not nice, but what's the big deal? You have to understand this is part of a much bigger pay-to-play operation, real big pleasuring of lots of judges, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars directly to politicians. This is worse than, than Citizens United. Because Citizens United is about giving money to a campaign. This is putting money directly into the pockets of politicians, millions. That way they well, own you. There's no way out of it. Well, and they own, they own the Supreme Court now. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is your daily investigative news magazine. This is our special edition of the Election Crimes Bulletin. We do it with Greg Palast. He's at gregpalast.com. And, uh, Greg, uh, obviously we spend a lot of time trying to talk about what's happening on the voter front and the voter suppression. You have been traveling. You've been spending some time in Texas and some time in Oklahoma. I'm very concerned uh, 
in both cases about the suppression in Texas. It's about a, a very popular black leader who's uh, under attack. And in Oklahoma, it's suppressing the uh, Indian and tribal vote. So why don't you maybe we'll start in Texas. Let's start in Texas. So Supervisor I just Ellis. Texas. Yes. Okay. So Supervisor Rodney Ellis, the way that uh, Texas is set up and Houston, the city of Houston is run by its board of supervisors for its county, which is Harris County. That was a way to make sure that black people who are the majority in Houston don't have too much authority. So they moved. So it used to be an all-white board of supervisors running Houston. Then Rodney Ellis, who'd been a, you know, a, one of the most powerful leaders of the state legislature, decided, well, I'm going to see what we can do about fixing this. So he became a county supervisor, and now it's a majority black and Hispanic Board of Supervisors as of 2022, so have been Republican-controlled. So how did Ellis win this? The answer is organizing the Hispanic and African-American vote. Uh, but what the GOP was claiming is that Rodney Ellis personally ordered the theft and forgery of 700,000 ballots in Houston area. And so I met with Rodney Ellis on Juneteenth, and I asked him about that because I said if he were if he forged 700,000 ballots, and I he signed his uh, release form. That took 15 seconds. I said, by my calculation, you would need 121 years working full time to forge those ballots. So, how many Confederates did you have? I mean, we could laugh about it. Uh, that someone's personally forging 700,000 ballots or has a bunch of Confederates. But here's where it gets real serious. It's not just a goofy accusation. You had a very rich right-wing Texan hire a whole bunch of investigators to prove 700,000 ballots were stolen. By the way, just so you know, they haven't found one, but they thought they did because they said that they were being hidden in an air conditioning repair truck. So one former Houston policeman, who was hired, became a private eye. So it's a former Houston cop. He saw the air conditioning truck, the, you know, the supposed getaway vehicle with these ballots. On the highway, he slams into this truck, deliberately pushes it off the road, almost kills the owner of the truck, runs out, and here this truck's been run off the road, points the gun at the driver's head, the, the, uh, the driver is Hispanic and didn't speak much English, points a gun at his head, throws him down on the ground. Now, luckily, the driver had, had hit 911 because he didn't know what maniac had run him off the road, and now the guy has a gun in his face, so he hit 911. The Houston cops show up, and of course, the guy with the gun says, uh, oh, shows his badge, I'm Houston police, too, retired. And unusually, unusually, the cops were suspicious, so they told the guy, get up and open the back of your truck. Let's see these ballots you've stolen. He opens up the back of the truck with his gun on his head, at his head, and says, uh, and there was nothing but air conditioning ducts and <laughs> air conditioning parts. So unusually, the Houston cops arrested the other Houston cop who'd run the guy off the road. But this is the type of violence we're looking at, and in fact, in Arizona, when I was there, I talked to uh, one of the organizations that has 50 people full-time doing nothing but voter safety. We had armed men standing next to, because there's open carry, so you got these menacing armed vigilantes 
standing next to voter drop boxes in Hispanic neighborhoods and challenging people on their citizenship. Of course, you got a guy with a gun standing next to a drop box. You're not going to put in your ballot. You're going to, you know, who's going to take that chance? So when they get these notices, they have seven flying squads of safety people who don't go armed, but they de-escalate the situation and bring in cops, etc. But this is what Hispanic voters have to go through in Texas and, and, and Arizona. And, what's, you know, the, one, it, what's the yeah. current situation with Supervisor Ellis? He's, he, he's very popular at the ground, oh, yeah. but he's under major attack, right? He, he's got some he's serious under, what, problems. The, the problem is, what's very sad, I met with Rodney Ellis. And, you know, at night and stuff, they, all the blinds have to be closed in the state buildings. It, it was complete. Here was a guy who loves going among the people. He went to nine Juneteenth events. But now he has to have massive armed protection. This is ridiculous. But he kind of ignores a lot of it and goes to the crowds anyway. But, you know, that's, what's happening is that the level of threats of violence and actual violence Running a guy off the road, putting a gun in his head. The problem is, is that this is um, these people are trying to justify this stuff. It's it's very very dangerous. The, the death threats against Ellis and others. The, we're cranking up a new level of violence that I'm very very concerned about. You know, not just in in Houston, but obviously the GOP is very concerned that they could lose Texas because they were shocked when they lost control of Houston to Rodney Ellis. Now they're concerned that if Rodney Ellis has taken Houston, their big city, that that the Democrats are prepared to take back all of Texas. And so to try to prevent this, for example, uh, Ken Paxton, who is their attorney general, who's been impeached, by the way, and he's probably going to go to jail. Right. But in the meantime, on his way to jail while he's committing various crimes, he also proudly crowed that he that the only reason why Donald Trump won Texas is that he blocked Rodney Ellis's plan to mail out 2.4 million votes to all voters in Houston. Because remember, in 2022, we were looking at, and 2020, we were looking at, this was COVID. And, this, and Houston and the county of Harris, which is Houston, decided, well, we're going to make it easy for people to vote. We're going to create, drop boxes are illegal in Texas, so they literally created uh, drive-through kiosks where you could vote, show your ID and vote. They shut those down. And you were supposed to get a, your ballot in the mail so that you can just drop it off at the kiosk or mail it or whatever uh, you want to do. And so Paxton said, I basically saved Donald Trump's election or saved Texas. They couldn't save the election, but they saved Texas by blocking the mailing out of the ballot. So people expected to get their ballots in the mail and never got them. In Houston, okay. the Democratic area. Okay, that now just finally, uh, you were also dealing with Oklahoma and uh, sort of Arizona. tribal voting terror. You're calling it. You yes. want to talk about because this and this is important to our community because the we know that um, the Indian communities in the last five to seven years have gotten very active in terms of organizing the vote and making sure people do vote. This is uh, yeah. a new thing. So this is why you've got these right wing is trying to shut them down. That's right. In fact, I would note you have 200 um, tribal reservations in California more than anywhere else. We don't realize that, some, some of us Californians. But understand, 
the American Native vote is the swing vote in Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico, and Oklahoma, of course, which used to be called Indian Territory. So I met with tribal leadership in uh, from both Arizona and Oklahoma, and I've been following this a long time. There is no group which faces more vote suppression than on the reservations in the Pueblos and uh, of the American uh, indigenous peoples. There is no one that comes close, no group that, that suffers more. And let me give you some of the examples, some of the tricks that they pull. So, for example, I found out that the Pascua Yaqui Reservation, that in Arizona, because the Republicans were desperate, because they, Arizona was slipping away. And let's not forget, Trump only lost Arizona by about 14,000 votes. And what happened was they were shocked because they literally pulled polling stations from the reservations. I don't mean reduce them. Like the Pasco Yaqui didn't have a single polling station, not one, not one for the res. But what happened was is that the organizers of the, the American uh, tribal leadership, they went out and they organized people for mass mail-in voting. They did this all over Indian country. And that, if it weren't for that, for that like, program of saying they're taking away our votes, they're literally removing the polling stations from reservations, we have to counter that. That's why Biden won Arizona and shocked them, because they suddenly had an avalanche of American Native voters, which they didn't expect. And that was in Arizona. Then you had the same in Nevada, which where it was also a swing swing area. Now, one of the problems we've run into, or when I say we, I mean American democracies run into, is that after the Patriot Act, and this is very cute, Bush and Rove put in a cute little codicil that basically said you can't get a mail-in ballot unless you have a formally recognized street address with a street number. Now, understand, when you're in a Pueblo, I was like in the Acoma Pueblo and Taos Pueblo and, and other reservations, an address might be two doors down from the gas station, uh, one mile due south from the post office. That's your, that's your address, and you get your mail at the post office, but that's a post office box. You cannot get, you cannot get a ballot delivered to a post office box. So how do these people you know, get their ballots? So they had to run these whole campaigns, but I can tell you I met voter after voter on, in the Pueblos saying I couldn't vote because they said I didn't have a formal street address. These are the games that are being played. And here's one more. I'll just give you, I can go on and on, but let me give you one more. Uh, we just have a minute is, left, yeah. Yeah, so um, in, in uh, New Mexico, they handed out, because people didn't have formal addresses, they said, we'll give you provisional ballots, and then we'll, we'll review and approve uh, certain of these ballots. So they had hundreds of ballots that were provisional in the Pueblos. And then uh, they were all rejected. 100% of the ballots were rejected. Why? Because they were in the wrong, not the official envelopes, they were in the wrong envelopes. Why were they in the wrong envelopes? The answer was, that's what the officials gave them. They gave them the wrong envelopes and said, oh, you have the wrong envelopes, disqualified ballot by the hundreds. And this was, this was I remember, this was the difference between George Bush won against John Kerry by 5,000 votes. That's it. And if they had counted all the American native Pueblo vote. In New Mexico, Kerry would have won New Mexico. So this is the problem we're running into. So, and, and so that's why I'll be reporting from
from Indian country. Uh, a lot more <clears throat> to come on that subject. The, this is uh, the Election Crimes Bulletin. That's the amazing Greg Palast. You can find him at gregpalast.com, filmmaker, best-selling author, investigative reporter, uh, former uh, BBC reporter, and we're happy to have yeah. him uh, with us these days. Greg, uh, thank you for taking the time out. Incredibly important information. Again, it's Greg Palace, gregpalast.com, and um, we will talk to you soon, Greg. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye, Dennis.